All right, would you take your Bible, please, this morning and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 24. If you don't own a Bible, there's one in the pew rack in front of you, and if I'd invite you to take that home as our gift to you if you don't have one. You can, if you're unfamiliar with how to find 1 Samuel, it's towards the front, of the front of the Bible, and you can find the page numbers on the screen behind me. I want to begin today by telling you about a family by the name of Waxel, Ellie and Abram Waxel, Jewish family. They were the only members of their extended family to survive the concentration camps of Hitler's Third Reich during World War II. After being liberated by the Allied forces, they immigrated to the U.S. Uh, on their way coming from Eastern Europe, they stopped in Paris for a young son to be born. Well, how many have, have old sons? Just a young son to be born, right? Usually they're young when they're born. <laughs> it's gonna be wild, I can tell you already, okay. So they, uh, young Sammy was born in, in Paris in 1947 and then they made their way to, to the US. Sammy was impacted greatly by growing up in a family and the home of concentration camp survivors. He learned that the family was really intent on exchanging that Nazi-style suffering, trading that in for some good old American success stories. Sammy learned at an early age that success was available to those who were willing to work for it. Basically money, if you will, could buy lots of things if you became successful. You could live in the right community. You could buy a house that others would admire. You could drive a car that went along and matched that house. You could enjoy a lifestyle that others could see and say, well, man, look at those people. They've done well in life. And so he worked hard from a young boy. Worked his way through school, through university, eventually advanced to the point where he got a PhD in microbiology and immunology. He was on his way to finding the success that he wanted his parents to see and leave behind the stigma of being raised in a family of Jewish concentration camp survivors. His quest led him from one prestigious position to another, from one university and one company to another, and all the way along he met people of great influence all around the country and he was leveraging those situations and those people to eventually create his own firm. Created his own firm, was doing really well, and along the way invented something that the public desperately needed, a new drug. A new drug that would treat colorectal cancer in a new way, and the whole nation in the medical community was quite fascinated with the whole thing. In 1991, he took the public, public pardon me, he took the company public, and you can watch the video of what the takes place as he's on the New York Stock Exchange and the gavel comes down and they realize that they have suddenly become, everybody involved in the company, multimillionaires overnight with the sale of the stock that was available. He had now, now had more money than any one person could ever use, if you will. He could virtually buy anything he wanted. He was a driven man, a man with great leadership skills and a brilliant mind to match it. And of course, if you know the rest of the story, it didn't end as well as it started. I'll tell you the rest of the story in just a moment or two, because right now what we're doing today is we are examining the topic of leadership during our time in sermons in the month of July. 
We started last week by looking at leadership within the family. Next week, we're going to look at what does it mean to lead yourself. And the week following, what does it mean to have leadership in the church? But for today, we want to see what the Bible might have to say about leadership in the workplace, in the places where you go each day. I want to be frame our discussion by mentioning a story that I brought to you last week and kind of reviewing it, if I may. Going back some 3,000 years to the first king of Israel. His name was Saul. God had appointed him to be king. And as his reign advanced, he walked with God wherever God went, Saul went. But then as the reign, as he began to get a little bit long in the tooth, sometimes God would say, go over here, and he wouldn't follow. Or sometimes God would say, stay here, and he would wander off. And so God began to look at Saul and go, huh, this guy's not the greatest king anymore. Maybe we need to make a shift. And sure enough, there was a young man that scripture says was a man after God's own heart. His name was David, and God had said, David's going to be the next king. And so Samuel, the leading religious figure in the country, anointed David to be the next king. But there was some difficulty within the nation along that way, because at the present time, when, when David was, was anointed, Saul was still king, and the public kind of followed Saul, though slowly the public opinion began to shift, and they began to follow David. Saul didn't like it. Saul began to say, I want, that, I want that young kid killed. And so there was an entourage around David, and there was an army around Saul, and the army kept looking for David, and David and his men were on the run for their lives for many years. We're going to read in 1 Samuel chapter 24, where we really step into, if you will, another day at the office for David, Okay. First Samuel chapter 24, after Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000, so he's got a big army, 3,000 able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheep pens along the way and a cave was there. And this is a little, in, little delicate. Uh, just, well, just Saul went in to relieve himself, Okay. What, was, what he didn't know was that he went in there for just a few moments of privacy, that David and his men were far back in the cave. They were hiding from these 3,000 guys who were chasing them. And the men said to David, this is the day the Lord has spoke of when he said to you, I'll give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. David crept up unnoticed, cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. Then David went out of the cave. So now David's going to follow Saul out and he's going to say to Saul, Hey, look, I could have killed you, all right? He shouts out to Saul, my Lord, my King. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, why do you listen when men say, David is bent on harming you? This day you've seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on my Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but didn't kill you. I was close enough to do you in. Under any other circumstances, you'd be dead. 
He says, see, there's nothing in my hand to indicate that I'm guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I've not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me. But my hand will not touch you, as the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds. So my hand will not touch you. A day at the office, just like yours, right? Some of you are going, well, I don't have a day in the office. I'm retired. And you wonder, (laughs) what does this topic, leadership at work, have to do with you? You no longer punch a clock. You no longer have to get on a plane on Tuesday morning and travel to somewhere in the country or out of the country. You don't have to get on a bus. There's no taxi waiting for you. And you say, I'm retired. I don't have any leadership opportunities or responsibilities any longer. I want to tell you, this message for you is for you today. It's for you to consider and help you look at how you might lead your neighbors in the issues that are faced in your community or in the places where you volunteer to work and you wonder about leading there. Others of you would say, well, yeah, I got a job. I go to work every day, but there's nothing within the job or even within the job description that says I have any leadership responsibilities or opportunities. How will this apply to me? That's a fair question. Absolutely fair question. Because for some of you here today, work is indeed a mind-numbing, endless, day after day, hour after hour, carpal tunnel-inducing syndrome project. Know what I mean? You make one widget after another. It's the same process day in, day out. You sweep the same floors. You answer the same telephone. You wash the same dishes. You stare at the same computer screen. And I've got good news for you today, if that's you. What we're about to learn together from from Scripture today can change the way in which you see your job. So it is for retirees today that I speak. It is for those of you who are in positions you say it won't matter to me. And it might also be for those of you who might find yourself a little further up in the organizational chart, okay? So in order to set the stage and figure out what does 1 Samuel 24 have to say, let me give you some reasons, first of all, about why we are people who go to work. Why is it that you volunteer? Why is it that you go there every day? Well, first of all, work Work is part of a biblical worldview. A strong work ethic is not something that we invented here in America. A strong work ethic is found throughout Scripture. It's a biblical mandate right out of the Garden of Eden when God said to Adam and Eve, work the soil, take care of the animals. You're responsible to provide food for each each other. Second, a strong work ethic, if it brings success, that's good. One marker, one marker, not the only marker, but one marker of a good life is the good life. So you go, now what does that mean? Well, here's what I mean. I acknowledge that a lot of people cannot live the good life, if you will, where success is automatically brought to them, if you will, through their work. Some people don't get to live a good life, often, pardon me, they don't get to live the good life, often through life settings beyond their control. Tragedy Misfortune is visited upon both good and evil people alike. And when we talk about the good life, 
It's not just, well, it's not just the American dream that I'm talking about. And it's not just, I want to remind you, the good life and success is not just about you. It's not all about you. On the other hand, we are called within Scripture to provide for our families. Within, within the book of Timothy, 1 Timothy, we're told this, that anyone who doesn't provide for their relatives and especially their own household has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. We are called by God to go and provide for our families and to do that through the process of work. Nobody ever goes to work and says, I want to be poorer as a result of working today, right? But let's be honest. We go to work every day so that we'll have a paycheck at the end of the week or at the end of the month and so that we can provide for our families. And that's very appropriate. It's very biblical. I'm aware, though, that even as we strive after success, we have to be careful what we do with that success. And I don't always know where the line is between success and excess. Does that make sense? And so sometimes I'll just say I'm leaning up against a question mark here on how to answer that. But I am aware of this. A marker of a, of a good life is the good life. One marker. Particularly when we realize that the third reason we work is to use those resources that come our way. Jesus expected his followers to arrange for the good life for other people. Compassion and care, leading others to experience a better life today as compared to tomorrow, is the responsibility of all the followers of Jesus Christ. And in work settings, that requires leadership coming from Christians. That's, that's why we work. We work so that we will be part of a biblical worldview. We work so that we will provide for our families. And we work so that we can then use those resources as well out of the overflow of those, out of generosity, to provide for care and compassion of others. That's why we work, but how? Well, the story in 1 Samuel 24 gives us some very clear ways in which to lead at work regardless of our setting on the organizational chart. Let me give you just some observations out of this story today that I think will help us. For example, as you look at David leading his men and leading in this very odd situation in the cave, you've got to acknowledge righteous ethics were involved in the situation. David was able to think ethically, even in the intensity of the moment of Saul, his enemy, if you will, or at least Saul thought David was an enemy. An enemy. He, he's right there. He could, he, could, he could do in. He could kill Saul. And in the midst of it, he's able to say, mm, this isn't the right thing to do. As a matter of fact, once Saul learns of David's possibilities and how he could be dead right then, this is what Saul says. Judging David's ethics, he says, you're more righteous than I. You've treated me well, but I've treated you badly. You've just, told, you've just now told me about the good you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you didn't kill me. Saul recognized David's ethical righteousness. David could have killed Saul and realized that that would bring an end to Saul's reign. But in the moment... David chose the most ethical approach. Even, if you think about it, the story we read, even the men around him, David's own men are saying, go for it. This is your moment. But David, with some ethical thinking, was able to push back from public opinion, push back from those around him, and make the right choice. 
Righteous ethics, folks, righteous ethics on the job will bring leadership your respons- responsibilities your way. Lead by watching, friends, by watching for the ethical approach to the work you're doing. It might mean that the expeditious way is not the best way. The easiest and quickest thing would have been for David to kill Saul. But that wasn't the best move. Just because there's an opportunity doesn't mean it's the best move. Like David, even when you go against public opinion, allow God-given ethics to lead you. You and your righteous ethics will lead the day. Observation number two as to why and how David was able to lead in that setting. He was able to catch the big view. He was able to, if you will, get and look at the 50,000 feet above, get a different perspective. We read in, Sam, in verse five where David was conscious stricken for having cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him for he is the anointed of the Lord. David realized, man, I, I could assassinate the king right now. But if I do, he's able to think this through. If I do, a very bloody civil war will come about. Because at this point in David's life and in Saul's reign, not all the public opinion had moved towards Saul. As a matter of fact, he's got 3,000 men. He's got an army still ready and willing to fight. It would have been improper and short-sighted for David to have brought about that assassination. He was able to see the big picture. Observation number three. Leadership requires consistency in good thinking and in actions. We're talking about ethics, but not just ethics now and then, but consistently thinking in the right way. And David was consistent in seeing the larger picture. See, this scene in 1 Samuel 24 basically repeats itself in chapter 26. Again, Saul is on the march trying to find David and kill him. And we're going to read from 1 Samuel 26 where his army, Saul's army, comes to a place in the, in the evening and they make, up, make camp and they, they, um, they go to bed and, and they go to sleep. And look at what happens. 1 Samuel chapter 26, verse 7, David and Abishai... The two armies are quite close to each other. Saul's men don't know how close they are. They don't even set up sentries or guards. David and Abishai went to the army by the night, and there was Saul lying asleep inside the camp with his spear stuck in the ground near his head. The soldiers were lying around him. Abishai said to David, Today God has delivered your enemy into your hands. You can, you can hear him. In the, it's, it's nighttime. All the men are sleeping. They're right there in the middle. Of him. He can, he's getting up close to David's ear. And he's going, let, let, let's just pin him to the ground. Pin him to the ground with the one thrust of the spear. Are you ready? We won't do it twice. And David says, don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless. As surely as the Lord lives, he said, the Lord himself will strike him, or his, in other words, he'll just die, or his time will come and he will die that way. In other words, God's going to take him out, or he'll just die from old age, or he'll go into battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. Now, get the spear and water jug that are near his head and let's go. And basically, what happens is, in, the, in chapter 24, 
David shows Saul, after the fact, shows Saul the robe, the corner of the robe. In chapter 26, after the fact, he shows Saul, hey, look, we got so close to you, we took your water, we took your water bottle, man, that's how close we were, and we, we took your spear that was right there, we could have thrust it through you. David was consistent in right thinking. He was able to prove to Saul again that he was unwilling to be engaged in an unrighteous assassination. In other words, not only did he do the right thing once, but he consistently did the right thing. Consistently, he was trustworthy. Are you consistently trustworthy at work? Observation number four. The reason David was able to get his arms around this whole thing was because of the calling of God on his life. What has God called you to do? And who has God called you to be at work? See, David knew that God had called him to be king, but he was willing to wait for God's moment to move into that position. He wouldn't force God's hand or God's plan. You could think of it this way. Go back to the time when David was first anointed king to be the king by the prophet Samuel. Again, Samuel is the most important religious figure in the country. And he, he's, he sees that Saul is no longer walking with God. God says, I don't want him to be king anymore. And so Samuel comes and anoints David to be the next king, this young man who had a heart after God. We're not for sure that it's in 1063, but it's somewhere in that neighborhood. The actual date we're uncertain, but the, the length of time of the next series of events we're more certain of as biblical scholars as to what happened. Because that would have happened somewhere around 1063. Two years later, 1061, is when the event happened in the cave. So within two years, David is gone from being anointed to now Saul's after him. Two years after being anointed, wouldn't you think after waiting two years, you'd say, hey, I've done enough waiting. God's anointed me. I've got this chance to kill this guy in this cave. I could do it. Didn't do it. He knew what his calling was. A year later, 1060, it's the story of the jug and the spear. Still, David didn't do it. Three years he's been waiting now. It took a number of years after that until Saul fell on his own sword. He really did. He died from falling on his own sword, literally. And David, at that point, 1056, he only got to assume a little portion of, assume leadership of a little portion of the nation, the portion we call Judah. It really wasn't until 1048, a number of years later, that David's reign actually grew to include all of Israel. In other words, David knew his calling. He knew he was to be king, and he knew God was in charge, and he waited for God to bring all the pieces together. Now, I don't want you to any way by here in any way that David was passive. It wasn't like he had some laissez-faire approach. Whatever will happen is okay with me. No, he did his job. He was actively working, but working in a way that reflected God's timing and God's plan. Notice the number of years involved. This is what we do know. While we don't know the exact dates, we do know the number of years. 15 years from the moment of anointing to full leadership. Friends, leading at work requires a willingness to work with God's plan, a willingness to say God's calling is on me and it requires patience, which begs the question, what is God's calling on your life? Well, we said we work, a number of reasons I gave. We work because 
It's part of being human as seen in the Garden of Eden. We work for money for the development of the good life for our families, and then we use those funds to um, be involved in other people's lives for compassion and care. But is that all of your work calling? Is that the full reason why we lead at work? What is your calling at work? Well, let me tell you what it's not. It's not to be like Sam Waxall, the fellow I was telling you about at the beginning of today's message. Remember the fellow who discovered that colorectal cancer drug and became a multimillionaire overnight. Do you know the rest of the story? You probably do. You just have forgotten it. I'll remind you. See, in his quest to find success in a way that truly mattered, Sam, while he had millions of dollars, began to borrow money against the stock that he owned in his company. The borrowed money meant that he could even buy more lavish things and live a more lavish lifestyle. And at one point, he carried a personal debt of more than, catch this, $188 million. He personally owed to creditors. It was going to be okay because the, the, the drug was going to do so much for so many people. Christmas Day 2001, he received a phone call that threatened to bring his quest to a screeching halt. He learned that within just a few days from then, the FDA was going to send a letter to his company, Imclone, and tell him that they wanted more trials before they would release that cancer drug to, to the public. Waxel knew that, hey, once that word gets out, the value of all my stock is going to decrease. And so, with that insider knowledge, he sold 75,000 shares of Imclone, valued at that point of about $5 million. He called his father and some close friends, telling them to sell their Imclone holdings as well. One of those associated with that stock sale and one of those close friends was none other than, do you remember? Martha Stewart. Oh, now it's some of you go, oh, now I remember. She went to prison. Yeah, she went to prison. She went to prison for insider trading. To Sam, though, nothing would signify failure more than what, caught, what happened to him in the days following that. His elderly father, who had sacrificed so much and survived so much, ended his life in poverty because he'd put all his money in Imclone. His son was publicly humiliated. His son broke the law in an effort to protect his hard-won public persona. Martha Stewart and others went to prison for their actions. Oxhall pled guilty to six out of the 10 charges brought against him and he was given a 10-year sentence. The day the FBI agents led him away in handcuffs from his multi-million dollar home, his public humiliation was beamed around the world. His drive had led him all the way to a prison cell. And the tragic irony of all of that is if he'd only waited, if he'd only let the story play out as it, should have, as it was going to play out, because in the long run, that drug was approved by the FDA, and in the long run, that drug does really help patients who have colorectal cancer, and in the long run, his stock would have been worth $6.8 billion. Catch that, ladies and gentlemen. What's the calling of God on your life? Are you willing to wait it out? His brilliance, his drive could have been really used to work with that cancer drug, but now Eli Lilly owns it and he doesn't. 
How will you lead with the calling of God upon your life at work? You say, I don't know if I have a calling to go there. Yeah, you do. You do. Jesus told you how to lead at work. At the end of his ministry, Jesus said this, go and make disciples of all nations. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Do you know that word nations there? That describes your workplace because in Greek, the word there is ethna. It means a peculiar group with, with a, group of, a group of people who have a unique marks and unique settings. When you go to work, either in your neighborhood, in your volunteer setting, or when you go to work this week, those people you work with, that's a peculiar group of people. They're, they're the only ones there who know that story. And you have the responsibility, friends, to go. Your calling before, from God is to go and make the name of Jesus Christ known in that nation, that, that workplace nation where you, where you go each week. Your office, your factory, your neighborhood, your volunteer group is made up of that unique set of people. And Jesus calling on your life is to lead, to lead through righteous ethics, to lead through consistency of your big picture views, to lead through your willingness to wait to discover God's plan, and to lead people to Jesus, to make disciples through the way in which you work, at the place where you work. I invite you to pray with me. Lord, we want to take on that calling. And I have to admit, God, there's, there are people here who, they legitimately wonder, what, how does that calling work? I mean, Lord, we've got, we got people in the room who are 14 years of age, and they're trying to figure out how to do a calling to just mow a few lawns in the neighborhood to make some money, or 16-year-olds beginning to work at, a, at McDonald's or a fast food restaurant and saying, how is this a calling? I'm flipping burgers for a living. You've got people, Lord, just starting a career and they're doing grunt work. That's how it feels to them. Others, God, who are um, making their way through life and they're starting to see their name move up the organizational chart and seeing some success. And others, God, are retired. But in the middle of all that, God, we want to be people who respond to your work in our lives. And we want to lead, not in some obtrusive, you know, in your face way, God, but in a way that causes people to say, well, that person there has got some ethics and there's some consistency in those ethics. And they see the big picture. And Lord, we see the big picture is that we are to be your people in the unique nations that we will find ourselves in tomorrow at seven o'clock in the morning or at midnight tonight in the graveyard shift or three o'clock in the afternoon for afternoon workers. God, whatever the case, our goal, Lord, is that we would be your people, that in the unique settings, and sometimes, Lord, it's like we're in the back of the cave, but we're not going to respond to public opinion, God, or just the opinion of the floor in which we work, but we're going to be your people in those settings because we carry the name of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. <laughs>